0: Hi, and welcome to How I Got Here. I'm Olivia Berkman, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Wes Bricker, Vice Chair U.S. Trust Solutions Co-Leader at PwC. As co-leader, Wes is responsible for the quality of service excellence in the work performed by over 21,000 partners and staff, developing diverse teams, and driving innovation. Among many other roles, Wes served as the SEC's chief accountant beginning in 2016. Uh, Wes, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today.
1: Well, thank you very much, Olivia. It's wonderful to be with you as well as your audience.
0: So I'd love to start with some background on you. Um could you start with your college experience and then you can maybe tell us how you how you got interested in accounting in the first place?
1: Sure. So it um it's only been uh a little over 20 years but but it seems like a long time ago. Um I I went to um uh, college really as a uh, person my family. I I I grew up um, in a wonderful household of small business owners. My mom was a, a piano teacher. She had her piano teaching business. Um, and then my my father um, worked with his brother in a sawmill and logging business, which they had inherited from uh, my grandfather and his brothers. So um, it was a family of small business. And that's sort of how I grew up. And so going to college out of that was a big deal, um, and and so as I went to college, um, the big question was, you know, what do you go to college to do to study, and you know, sort of what are what are the outcomes? I landed in accounting really from inspiration from my college professor, um, Dr. Galley at the time. Then it would be Dr. Gifford. Um, both of those professors, among many others, were very inspirational for me because they helped me connect what I had grown up with, understanding the importance of relationships and cash flows and running a business and um, all of that. They helped me connect that to a world that I didn't know anything about, which was professional services and delivering accounting. Like I, I knew accountants. From taxes and payroll, but I didn't know accounting as a profession. I, I i I didn't know what that really meant or what that could be. And they helped inspire that. Um, and and I'm to this day very, very grateful for the role that um, my college experience had. I went to Elizabethtown College, uh, graduated undergrad. And then later I would go to law school. Maybe we can talk about that later, but um, it, it, it really reinforces for me the role that each of us have, whether we're in the classroom, whether we're in the office, the role of inspiring the next generation of leaders and professionals, uh, because that's my story. I was inspired.
0: I wonder having parents uh, you know, running their own small businesses, did that life ever appeal to you? Did your parents want that for you? Or were they like go to college and do something totally different than what we're doing?
1: It's a really important question. Um my brother runs runs that business now and does a phenomenal job. And my parents were very supportive of my going to college. Um, Because what they saw was the opportunity to have choice. I could always choose to come back, and in something like accounting, I could come back and help, could be part of it. Um, But it would also give me choice to do other things, and and so I I give a lot of credit to um, my parents and know, many of us do um that they were willing to support what they also didn't know a whole lot about, and that was the opportunity um to sort of move into a different segment of society, sort of the professional class um and um and and so that takes courage, that takes resilience. And I, I credit a lot, um, to their, um, their inspiration and their values that, that sort of gave me that foundation.
0: So if you were really the first person in your family to go to college and you mentioned, you know, going to law school, I I imagine that was an even bigger kind of leap that you took. What made how did you make that decision to go to law school, and how how do you think that experience has, and the knowledge that you gained, you know, at law school how how has that impacted your career and your perspective and all of that?
1: So, uh, law school for me uh, came from also a separate inspiration. Uh, my great uncle was uh, a public defender. Um, Local county public defender. So this is a, a great uncle, uh, who um, had been a lawyer, um, and he, you know every every family reunion, every time we were together for a meal, etc. He would always say, um, "Wes, you should be a public defender." He was an advocate. Um, he had a passion for the work that he did. He was very respectful. He was very respectful of choices. He was very respectful about my immediate family. And it was from that inspiration um, that um, as I went to college, I studied accounting, and I got started in the accounting profession uh, that I didn't, I, I I never walked away from. And so by the time I went to law school, I went to American University, um, the Washington College of Law. By the time I went, I was um, I was a manager at PwC, so I was well into my uh, my public accounting career. And I went to law school not to switch careers, but to add to the one I already had. And and that was that was great advice. From Uncle Blake. Um, he he had sort of shifted in his advice to um, being a public defender, um, to just really having a passion for understanding the role of law is really about the relationships that we have with each other. <laughs> what are the rules of the road? What are the rules of the road for a business with its customers, with its employees, with another business? What are the rules of the road between business and government? What are the rules of the road for each of us individually? And so the study of law helped in public accounting because public accounting is about transparency and measuring a relationship. So it adds to it. It adds and it complements it sits really at the intersection. And that's why um, when I went to law school, I found it as adding to and accelerating the path that I was already on. Um, but, but again, I, I got there w- really through a, a place of curiosity, asking questions um, from mentors, um, family, and benefiting from a lot of the support. I, I would I would say one one more thing, Olivia. Uh, I, I happen to believe that we all get to where we 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 get because of other people who help us along in the journey. And that's very much my my experience and my story, whether it's family, whether it's professors, whether uh whether it was others at the firm or people that I had met it's it's from that place of offering each other support. We have to do this together for one another in order for uh for the system to really work.
0: I agree and I I don't have to ask you if that has inspired you to be a mentor to others because I am 100% positive that you are. Um That's right. and and it's interesting when you're talking about your great uncle as a public defender because I I understand that it inspired you to go to law school, but also I feel that that particular role, um, you know, you're doing a public service and I see that as a real theme for you in your career, you know, whether you had gone to law school or not really, um, improving transparency in the profession. And, and, you know, when you look at your career, there's a real sense that you had like a higher calling. Mm -hmm. Right? right? Is that fair to say? I
1: I love that point, and it's and it's very much the way I think about it. Whether it's the P and CPA, the public piece, or, right. or whether it's um, public advocacy, or or whether it's Elizabethtown College, where where I uh, had my undergraduate, uh, their motto was "Educate for Service." That all of all of the work that we do. It has a broader purpose. And at PwC, for example, our purpose is to build trust in society, to solve important problems. The mission and the purpose of the SEC is to protect investors, to promote capital formation and the fairness and the efficiency of markets. All of those public purposes are bigger than any of us individually, certainly bigger than me individually, and it it does enable us to advance society. It does enable us to really add to the meaning of why we build teams, why we put our our energy and our commitment and our passion into something. it It's because we're building society for something better.
0: Hey, I love that. So, that's a great segue into uh, talking about you You joining the SEC as the professional accounting fellow initially. Mm-hmm. How did you get that opportunity?
1: Yeah, so. Um, and it, also,
0: Wes, sorry to interrupt you, but like at what stage of life were you at when that sure. when that happened?
1: So I was through law school. I was working in our uh, PwC national office in Florham Park, New Jersey. And it was the middle of the global financial crisis. Um, so let me let me put a couple of pieces together. There's There's sort of a buildup to being in that position. There's the process of getting the position, and then there's uh, the purpose of the position. the so three three different pieces here. So the buildup of getting the position to get a position of, of that sort um, requires planning, requires a, a bit of work. And I, I still remember um, I had a, um, at PwC, um, we have um, you know a role for partners who, um, it's called a relationship partner, and it's someone who gives you know, a manager or a senior manager or a senior associate advice about their career. And that's that's just sort of part of, of career planning and mentorship, et cetera. And my, my relationship partner at the time was um a woman by the name of Marianne Murphy. Um and she's retired now. Uh, but she um she was a terrific relationship manager because she was very direct. And um she asked me how I thought my career was going and i I guess I was a little too um short term focused at the time because i i was I was wrestling with questions about do I stay at the firm and do I leave do I do other things and she she asked me um well what is your plan like what is your plan whether you stay at the firm or leave or oh like What is it? What is that choice connected to? And it was really powerful advice because it helped me think about not just the short term, it helped me think about time horizon. That I have one career, I can have many experiences, but it has to fit together. Otherwise, it's just a series of jobs. It's not a career, it's just a series of jobs. That's not a necessarily a good or a bad thing, but that's not what I wanted. I wanted purpose, I wanted to add something. And to do that, I needed a series of experiences that built one after the other. And as she, as she pushed me to think about that question, she said, you know, I, I really think you need um, to go much deeper In a couple of specific areas. She said, you're an inch deep and a mile wide. At the time, you know, that was that was tough to hear. But it was great advice because she then followed it up with action. She said, So I'm going to put in a call to this other partner who's in our national office. And I don't want you to speak with that partner about what it takes to earn a spot in the national office. And I'm going to put in that call and then you're going to do the legwork to figure it out. That was great advice because it was action oriented. You know, it wasn't just like, here's some platitudes, good luck, and I'll see you in six months. I like, it was action oriented. So I called that person, um, that partner sort of sort of laid out what is you know what it really takes to get into the national office and and then um, it was a, a a gentleman he said um, he said, one of the other things um, that you really need to work on is connecting dots in a different way. And he made the point that public policy, which I had studied in law school. My practical experience of working on audit engagements, the technical expertise that I was pursuing, all needed to connect. That was great advice. So I earned, um, I earned a spot in our national office, um, consistently uh, delivering on projects and engagements, etc. And that's where I landed as the financial crisis was really setting into many of our financial institutions and spreading across the economy. And it was the connection of understanding public policy like a bank balance sheet and its relevance to investment decisions, but its, its relevance also in looking at stability across our economy, across our financial system that the, the policy making and the role of accounting was very much linked, I had studied that. And now is was in the national office and there were accounting questions. Consolidation, how do you measure cash flows in a security versus a loan? Uh, what's the measure of impairment? All of those questions were questions that I had a little bit of insight into because of the building blocks and the good advice. So at that point, spent quite a bit of time working on that international office, and the question about standard setting came up: Should the FASB change the standards for better reporting in the middle of the crisis? Congress was holding hearings, the SEC was engaged, and indeed the FASB needed practical experience and advice and input. I was part of the team to provide that. And so as the FASB worked on its standards, then the next question came up, which was um, for the accounting fellowship positions, what was the expertise that the SEC would need? So now I'm transitioning from, how did I get to the national office to making the step into the into the SEC as an accounting fellow? There's a couple of things that go into that. You've got to write a paper. So mine was 14 pages, you know, single space, like, and my paper dealt with consolidation. You know, what are the pieces of entities that go into a consolidated presentation? And how should those change, how could those standards change in order to present a more decision useful package for investors, but also for others who use financial statements? That's what I wrote about. So you write this paper, you submit it along with, you know, a bunch of paperwork, your resume, et cetera. It goes to the SEC, they, they go through all the applications, and then they hold interviews of, you know, the people that, that make the next cut. And the interviews, it's a full day of interviews. So um, you sit with everyone else who's competing for this, for the job you're competing with, and you have like a panel, discussion in front of the best accounting experts of the SEC. So you have to defend your paper. Well, that requires a lot of preparation, a lot of stress, et cetera. And I spent um, November, December, I didn't really have holidays that year. Um, I spent that time preparing. Um, I once again got a lot of input, a lot of good advice. Um, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? what about these questions that could come up? A lot of advice. And so when I interviewed, I felt really well-prepared. I presented my paper, took a bunch of questions. And, um, through that full day of interviews, ultimately landed the job. But then the question is, well, what job is that? What do you do? So as an accounting fellow, it's a two-year position. And, um, my area of focus was accounting. You can have other areas of focus like international ethics and auditing. You can have a focus on auditing, but mine was on accounting and it was during the financial crisis. And so measurement, consolidation, um, interpretations uh, from companies that, that might have a question or their auditor might have a question. Those were the kinds of things that I worked on for two years. I also worked on rulemaking as the SEC sort of took stock of where the securities were, laws were for asset backed securitizations and asset backed securities offerings. I worked on, on those sorts of issues. That gave me then a much clearer insight from the theory that I had learned in law school to the real world application of the role of the SEC and the critical function of our system for disclosure that enables companies to get the capital they need, to give people jobs, to create new products and services, to grow, to compete, but also for investors to have an opportunity to invest their excess savings in a way that they understand the rules of the investment that they understand what the bargain is what the risks are what the uncertainties are what the returns are to really see that come together in a different way at the regulator was a real privilege and and so that's how that's how I really got there and and you know some of the things that I worked on as a fellow
0: and how did that turn into your appointment to chief accountant for that SEC
1: yeah So uh, great question, let me follow that same pattern. So um, a fellowship uh, for the SEC was two years at the time, so I finished the two years. And then at that point, you have to find a job. So um, I thought about what I would do next. And um, I had an opportunity to uh, go back to PwC among a variety of other opportunities. I chose to go back to PwC, and so I returned to the firm, um, and I served as an audit partner. Um, I led engagements, um, uh, served also on our firm's um, sort of regional or or you know sort of local office management team. I was in charge of people and careers, something I'm very passionate about, and. Um, led um, our recruiting efforts, our development efforts. At the time, we we put in a new performance system to help PVC professionals understand the dimensions of what it would mean to be a more complete leader. We called it whole leadership. Through that work, you know, I did that for the next several years. And the financial crisis sort of wound down um, change in administration. And I still remember this. I was, um, I just sort of completed a very busy, uh, period of time. And, um, it was a Friday. Um, and I had just a regular, um, doctor's visit, you you know, physical, you you know, that sort of thing. It was Friday morning. I'm like, Oh, this is going to be, this is gonna be a good day. I'll get the physical out of the way. And then I'm just going to take a breather. It's a Friday. Early weekend, as I go in, get checked out. And um, I get out of the doctor's office and I look at my phone. Got a bunch of missed calls. Like, oh, no. Like, what's happened? And these calls are calls from folks outside of the firm. Folks who are at the SEC turns out it was really good news. It it was really good news because um, those calls were calls to ask whether I might be interested in returning to the SEC uh, to first serve as the deputy chief accountant, uh, but to be part of a succession plan to serve as the chief accountant. And so... um, that took a lot of, um, conversation with, um, with my wife and family, uh, did, did we want that? Um, because in that role, um, what, what I had observed from having been a fellow is that the deputy chief accountant, the chief accountant, like those are highly, um, um, uncertain positions. Like there's, there can be a, you know, a market event or a corporate event, and then like you're doing a ton of work. You know, it can be seven days a week. Um, Those can be really intense jobs. Those can also be public jobs. You know, you have to testify before Congress. There's a lot of scrutiny in those jobs. And the question was, do we want that? Did I want that? Did my family want that? We talked about it as a family and we made a decision as a family. Um, I pursued that job, uh, was ultimately, um, appointed, uh, first as deputy chief accountant. Now that's a, that's a position where you're a senior officer for the U.S. government. Um, and so that was a big deal. That was a big deal for me. Again, going back to early days, Uncle Blake talking about public service, that was a big milestone. Um. Uh, not because that was my first time at the SEC, but that was that was the first time as a senior officer of our US government. So I got a plaque and so forth that hangs on my wall. Um, and that really paved the way to then um, also being uh, appointed as the commission's chief accountant, uh, which I served until 2019.
0: That's incredible. <laughs> And <clears throat> I want to ask you uh about because you said you talked about it with your family. So at that stage of your life, uh, because I know you have three kids now, do, were your kids very little, or, or did you have kids yet? Or I, how did I that did. play a role? He, he,
1: yeah. So Sam was um Sam was he was very small. Uh suffice to say, he was um he was just a couple of years old. Mm-hmm. Um we had twins on the way so and a very so, stressful
0: time for you as a family anyway exactly yeah and
1: and and that was that was one of the i, I would say points of maturity mm-hmm. um that that at the time i'm not sure i really fully appreciated um uh, but i do as i get older um the the need to have a conversation as a family uh because we did have multiple priorities right it wasn't just dad's career it wasn't just my career, but it was a family choice because we had uh, we had kids um who were very young had different needs um uh my wife Cindy also had a career has a career um has uh, very important um, aspirations, um, both in being a mom and being a lawyer and being a professional herself. And balancing that out, um, what what I appreciated at the time, and I continue to appreciate, is that um, person i was I was working for at the time, chair Chair white, Mary jo White, was very sensitive. Uh, to balance of uh, families, she appreciated um, th- that family was important. I would later work for uh, Chair Clayton, Jay Clayton. Same thing. A- and for me as a leader, reflecting on on that and and then how that carries into my my own role as a mentor, as a leader for others, it's the importance of landing balance. That there are always trade-offs, but it's in really balancing um and sometimes balance sort of sort of presumes that it hangs in perfect balance. I don't mean that. What what I mean is that we, we put onto the table the important Priorities like family, like a partner, a spouse, kids, career, organizational objectives, a long-term plan, and we make those decisions with a lot of input, and oftentimes together with the people who are closest to us. I benefited from that.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a real point of transition for you, obviously, in your career, but also as a family unit, making decisions all together that resonates with me for sure. Uh, We've talked about, you know, mentors and sponsors and advocates uh, and some action oriented advice that you've received that was very impactful as a mentor yourself is there advice that you find yourself giving often to mentees? Like, for instance, you talked about, um, you know, being encouraged to think long-term and think of a bigger the bigger picture. So what are some, some pieces of advice that you find yourself coming back to? Uh,
1: it, it's, it, it's that point that careers should be cumulative that one position should lead to the next and the one after that, assuming, assuming that someone wants a career. And so I guess the place I always start with those conversations is, is really the, the question of, what do you want? Because I think some of the most powerful advice I've received and now I try to offer to others, is to force that question. It's a values question, it's a personal question, it's an individual question, and not everyone wants or needs the same thing. Not, Not everyone wants or needs the things that were important to me. For some people, maybe they just want or need a job. That's what they need in that moment in time. That can be okay. But it's in forcing that question in a supportive way, in a way that says, I'll give you my best thinking, but let's not assume I know what you want or need. The second piece, assuming you want or need a career that builds one to the next. For me, the next question is, what is your second step? So, whatever conversation we're having about the next role at the firm or the next position uh, within the, the working um environment, what will that lead to? Your planning should at least take you beyond the horizon of that next experience. So, if you're looking for a promotion, what does that lead to? What are the kinds of skill sets that you will be building during that next position that leads to the one that follows it. And so for me, as I was coming up through as an associate and then a senior associate, a manager, a senior manager, and now a partner, and then as a partner from leading engagements to overseeing a a business unit and being part of our US leadership team, Each of those pieces I've arrived at because I've gotten input into what that next job requires. But this does require calibration. If we're if we're always looking for the next thing and not doing the job we have, that's equally a mistake. I'm gonna be super clear about that. That's equally a mistake. You've got to do the job you have today. And you have to do it well. Those are my three points that I generally start with.
0: Yeah, it comes back to the the theme of balance again, is balancing mm-hmm. your long-term goals and what right. you know the the reality of the role that you currently have. Um, you know, we when you look at your career, Wes, it's it's obviously very impressive and you're very accomplished, but I would like to know from you what some of the bigger challenges were. Obviously your decision to, uh, you know, join the sec, um, sounds like a kind of a tough decision. What are some of the other challenges that you have faced and, and either overcome or, or not?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, you you know, with every one of those uh, positions, uh, there's, there's sort of the uncertainty factor. Can I do the job having the confidence, the courage to step into it, um, with the vulnerability that maybe I'll fail. And and so one of the things I've learned over time, and it has been over time, is that uncertainty and vulnerability in careers and jobs, some people either sort of try to do it on their own, and they sort of close off, and other people reach out. And I've tried to always challenge myself to reach out to ask for help. And so uh, that's probably the area that I've grown consistently across my, uh, my years in the career of, of always reminding myself that it'll be okay. I'll feel vulnerable. But so long as I'm reaching out and getting help, then I'll be successful. Um, it's, It's also a piece that as I've helped others either above or below or beside me to recognize my own obligation to help them. It's that teaming, that willingness to serve others in a office environment, a firm environment, a regulatory environment that I, I think I've, I've learned uh, over time, because I've seen that. I've seen my best role models live that out to see even the best of leaders I've, I've worked for see themselves in service to the team. I've seen SEC chairs in service to the team. I've seen senior partners at the firm in service to the team. And that's what has given me confidence that I could be successful.
0: It's always nice to hear from leaders that they too have experienced some, you know, imposter syndrome.
1: Of course. Yeah, yeah.
0: it's, it, it's always like a bit of a comfort. Um, you I
1: do. I, I just want to underscore that, yeah. Olivia, because I, it's such a powerful point, especially in today's world where we have so much pressure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One of the things that that I, I'm sensitive to across uh, across the profession within the firm, et cetera, is the importance of mental health. But also, just to make that real for all of us, things like the imposter syndrome like, I don't feel like I'm worthy. I don't feel like I should be in this job. Someone will figure it out. That adds stress and complexity in a world that has so many things going on, whether it's inflation or or new families or aging parents, et cetera. There's so much that hits us to feel like you don't belong in a job or you don't belong at home it is crushing. And so how do we deal with that? I think we deal with that by naming it, by recognizing it, and then addressing it with our teams. But we do that first by naming it for ourselves. I, I, I don't always feel qualified. And you know what? Um, Individually, maybe I'm not. But as a team, there's nothing we haven't seen. That's what I tell my team consistently. Individually, we'll make pretty good decisions. But together as a team, we'll make great ones because of the benefit of different perspectives. That's a way of taking Imposter syndrome, naming it in a vulnerable way, and then moving forward from that place with action. And it creates a better team.
0: Well said. I I completely agree. I... Uh, you know, we talked a lot about service in this conversation. Would you describe yourself when you think about your leadership style? Would you describe yourself as a servant leader, or how mm-hmm. would you kind of classify yourself if you had to put yourself in a box?
1: Yeah, I I really like the concept of a servant leader. Um, I I I would also um, sort of put put myself sort of on the spectrum toward. Um, Preferring consensus, but also looking for challenge and diversity of perspectives. I've had the privilege in my career of leading diverse teams. For example, at the SEC, we had economists, accountants, with finance professionals, and lawyers, all in the chief accountant's office. And we needed those diverse backgrounds to land on the best reporting answer that would work for the portfolio manager who's trying to price the security, or the lawyer who's evaluating a proxy proposal, or the economist who's looking at the fairness of our system, the efficiency of our markets. We had to land on accounting that served a broader group. That's why in accounting, we also use terms like generally accepted accounting principles. They're general, meaning there's been debate. There have been trade-offs. Not everyone's happy with the final standard, but it's enough to achieve general acceptance because it also serves a general purpose. Financial statements are general purpose financial statements. They don't serve everyone's individual idiosyncratic purpose. They serve general purposes. It's a broad tool. It's a starting point. And so collaboration, consensus building within a team is something that I've prioritized very much. That's what animates, um, for me, the profession and the profession's work. Uh, Because even though we're a niche area within society, we serve an incredibly important role of measuring displaying, reporting things so that other people can make important decisions.
0: That really tracks, you know, from what I know about you, because <clears throat> it you seem like a lifelong learner, right? And so I can imagine that you are always looking to learn from those around you, mm-hmm. uh, including your team. So that, that makes perfect sense. And you're right. I mean, Individually, we can accomplish a lot. uh, But when those feelings of imposter syndrome can strike, uh, to look outward is Mm -hmm. a very powerful piece of advice that that you've shared. Yeah. That's right. Um, I want to ask you about the future of the profession. What excites you? I know you have your hand in so many you know, things. So if anybody were to be able to make some predictions, it's probably you. What What really excites you about the future of finance and accounting?
1: Yeah, I'm incredibly optimistic. Um, and what gives me great optimism is that the foundation of the profession is trust. And if there was ever a period in society in the U.S. and globally, where we need trust, it's now. It's now because distrust is the prevailing emotion. Distrust in business from consumers or employees or other businesses in a supply chain. Distrust. If it's individuals and, and institutions, like the government, institutions of learning, country to country, we see distrust in every space we look. And that's where the profession has great relevance because what the profession does is that it adds confidence on the reliability of information so that other people can make important decisions, decisions of consequence whether it's making an investment decision or making a decision about whether to trust a supply chain partner's uh, service, like an administrator for securities or an administrator for payroll or an administrator for a large platform. Auditors provide assurance that all of the controls in that service organization are operating as designed. Or if they're not, where the deficiencies are. The profession has great relevance. So where's it going? The profession has a foundation of expertise in critical areas like measurement, whether you're measuring financial information, the consequence of transactions, events, and circumstances. The profession can also bring expertise in non-financial areas. Think about statistical information, greenhouse gases, because businesses are impacting the environment on the one hand, and that's where you get greenhouse gas statistical disclosure, like scope one, scope two, scope three greenhouse gases. But then equally the environment is impacting businesses and business models. That's where you get the financial effects of the climb and climate change on a business. Maybe it's impairments from a weather event like a hurricane or a flood. Maybe it's a liability for cleanup activities. Maybe it's an investment for offsets for carbon impact and the like. There's a lot of different effects From the climate on a business model. And accountants are right at the center of that. Accountants are also right at the center of things like cyber, cybersecurity, reinforcing the quality and the safety and the security of our businesses that are digitizing, both because it's there are new technological capabilities, but also because it's an imperative. It's an imperative that we saw coming out in COVID the, the the ability to continue to get goods and services maybe maybe we wanted more toilet paper than we could find on the shelves but like the the opportunity and the necessity for business models to digitize is increasing at a pace that increases also the exposure to cybersecurity and the and the profession is right there other things like algorithms. Are algorithms understood? Are they fair? Are they even-handed? Or is there bias? The profession has expertise in the process and transparency in the governance of things that need to be understood in a fair-minded way so that they can be trusted or not. So I have great optimism about the relevance of the profession both in its core capability of public accounting, like a tax return or a financial statement audit or specialized audit, but also in emerging areas where the subject matter requires specialized expertise coming together with more general knowledge. And what I see for the profession is that we are finding those spots where accounting as a domain of knowledge, finance as a domain of knowledge is coming together with things like scientific and engineering knowledge on climate or social expectations in engineering on things like bias and algorithms, ethical positions, moral positions, on things like tax fairness, all of that's coming together on the basis of trust in the profession. So I'm very optimistic that the profession, of course, will evolve. It will shift as society changes, as the needs change, and the profession will be changing with it. That's what gives me great optimism. Just just one one other point on that. John Kerry was a historian of the prof- uh, of the accounting profession. Um, he was the chair of the he was the technical director of the AICPA, and he wrote in 1962 two volume set of the history of the accounting profession. Sort as of 1962, there's a chapter where he talks about the uh, the coming of age of the computer and its impact on corporates. And the question was. With this massive computer and computing in 1962, would that lead to the obsolescence of the accountant? That was the question. Now, with the benefit of decades of, of hindsight, we see that the computer has made the profession even more relevant. It's not replaced it. And so as much as I see technology and data also changing and changing what people do on a day-to-day basis, it makes us more relevant, not less. It won't replace us. It'll change what we need to do. It'll change the skill sets that we need to have. <laughs> one, one of my roles, um, I serve as the chair of XBRL International, and we look at the digitization of business reporting worldwide. XBRL and structured data is present in every advanced economy and many of the emerging ones. That's an area, for example, for the financial statement auditor that thinks about the financial statement audit of the financial statements in sort of paper with the presumption that you look at the financial statements as a whole and you sort of start on page one and you read until you're finished and then you sort of look at it as a comprehensive package. Well, I think in time, assurance needs to shift from thinking about financial statements as a whole to individual financial statement data elements because that's the way increasingly it is consumed. So the risk assessment, the, the level of precision, materiality decisions, disclosures, how do we package that in a way that individual data elements like sales or inventory or compensation in its the way it's being consumed can come with the context of whether it's been assured or not and what that means over the next 10 years. I think we will continue to see a lot of impact, but have great confidence in the relevance of the profession.
0: I was just thinking while you were speaking that if anybody comes to me and says, you know, that they're looking for an inspiration boost for their accounting finance career, <laughs> that this will be the video that I will point them towards because um, your, your passion is very infectious. I know you've heard that before, but um and, and unfortunately we have run out of time, but I want you to know that the conversation has really surprised me, um, Mm -hmm. because you are so extremely accomplished. And I think that you could easily be mistaken for like, for lack of a better term, a, a workaholic. Right. Um, and so, I would not have expected, you know, a a prominent theme here to be balance uh, and service, and so yeah, I I really was um, very pleasantly surprised uh, by your insights, and you've given some really powerful advice, Uh, and so I just really want to thank you for your thoughtfulness and your time here with me.
1: Well, thank you very much, Olivia, Um, and uh, I I would say uh, to uh, not not only others in the profession and in business, but also all of those who are coming in as the next generation. Um, the more we do together with a profession and public mindset, the stronger we'll be, the more relevant we'll be and um, i'm I remain available um uh, for. Of others who have a similar mindset and similar purpose.
0: Thank you. Yes, I just want to say too. Like another theme has really been looking outward, mm-hmm. and and we and we have talked a lot about service, and that looking outward and seeing how the work that you're doing is impacting others is really where you you could find a lot of passion in these roles. That's
1: right. Right? That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right.
0: Well, again, thank you so much. This was very helpful and insightful, and I just really appreciate your time. And I know you're busy, so I, so thank you.
1: Well, thank you, Olivia. And uh, thank you for the work that you do as well, um, advancing um, high-quality information. So thank you.
0: Thank you.